Beautiful. Thank you. Good job. Good job. Well, good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Uh, thank you for braving the weather. I got out on Linko, which is a major thoroughfare, as you guys know, in the area, and could not believe that it was not plowed this morning. And so now my, I'm, I am proud to say that my Camry did its part in plowing Linko on the way in. So, wow, it was really bad. I don't think we would have had school today. Well, especially nowadays. Can you believe how quick they call school? I just look at my students, I'm like, come on, you've got to be kidding me. But this snow day is what we used to call spring break, right? Oh, my goodness. Don't, it's, all right, I'm, I'm already off track, sorry. Anyways, uh, hey, before we jump in, I, just, I have to start with this and just thank all of you so much because last week I was in Kidport, and um, I was able, it was one of those mornings when I was just kind of able to sit back and watch everything that happens and everything that goes on. And it's just so astounding to me to see what God is doing and to see who he is bringing together on his mission to love the world right again. It's so cool. And um, as we come together to try to help everyone everywhere every day find themselves on the way to believing. Love that line. So I've been thinking and preparing for this morning for quite a long time because, you know, the question is, how do you wrap up a series of talks um, that's in an even close to fitting way on Jesus's incredible and amazing Beatitudes? Like, these are his opening lines to his very first public talk where he invites us to reroute our lives into this anti-intuitive but beautiful, inspiring and captivating way of living a life of love and loving the life we live. And the more I thought about it, the more intimidating I got. It's just, it's beyond me, and I admit it. I, I suppose I could feel some pressure to get it right or to try to do this justice, but um, what God has done in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus is teaching and love and sacrifice um, has accomplished for us is beyond. It is beyond what any one person, any human being can explain or even understand, much less summarize. And so I'm going to begin this morning by once again insisting that I am simply up here wondering, okay? I'm wondering out loud for us today, trying to start a conversation, not teach a course or hand out any answers and then move on to the next topic. And so with that as an opening, that hopefully lowers the bar for what, from what you expect from me. <laughs> Okay, you see how I did that, right? But I also hope raises the bar for what we hope for from God. Let's, we're going to get started by going back to the beginning, where we got this idea of framing the Beatitudes as a map in the first place. And, and see, I want you to pay special attention this time. This is the second time we've watched this scene from The Chosen, a, a, a video about... a a video series about the life of Jesus, and see actually how he concludes the Beatitudes this time and where he invites us from there. So immediately after Jesus finishes the Beatitudes, he continues with what we now call the Sermon of the Mount. And he begins it with this very famous passage. This is what he said. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, I've heard dozens of talks about salt, and I've heard dozens of talks about light, and I thought, but I've never really heard one that is about both of them together. And so, again, this is me just wondering, but when I thought about what in the world does light and salt have in common, I came up with this. They're both selfless. If you think about it, you really can't see light. C.S. Lewis has a brilliant passage about this. He says, if you stare at the sun, you go blind. If you stare into a flashlight, you can't see anything. We don't see light. We see other things with light or by light, right? So light is a servant in that sense. And the same thing is true with salt. Salt is not about itself either. No one eats salt, but salt rightly dispersed into the world helps things to taste more like themselves. Salt brings out the natural flavor, if you will. So too much light, staring at the light, we go blind. Too much salt, and we taste the salt. And that's never good, right? So the invitation to be salt and light is the invitation to what one one of my favorite writers says is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's the freedom to be, and I love this too, un offendable unoffendable because it's not about me it's not about us anymore and more than anything I think it's the invitation to be agents of grace of you first or you go Lord or I believe in you go for it or you you can do it that's what it is share your gift it's an invitation to serve others in such a way that they don't know you're serving them. And they flourish where God can be seen in them and through them, and they can be seen light for who they really are, their natural flavor, if you will, salt. So Jesus is suggesting that this is the anti-intuitive rerouting that his map of blessing is leading us toward. Life is no longer about us or what we can prove, earn, display, signal, gain, or accumulate, or keep for ourselves. It's joining God on his, self, his selfless mission. It's being other-centered, like salt and like light. Now, when we started this, um, when we came back indoor in person in November, We said that we were going to parallel two things for this series of talks on how Jesus began his ministry with, we would sprinkle in there some of how and why storyline began. And so I'm going to do that as we go through this morning um, and and as we take a look at this invitation and how it's taken shape in the, I don't know, somebody told me it's been 18 years since storyline started. I can't believe I was only 12 when this all (laughs) kicked off, but whatever. So, anyways, I'll, so I'm going to sprinkle in some of that. Junior high, wow, didn't care for this. So, anyway, I took an art class in college, and I shouldn't admit this, but it was actually in grad school. I took an art class. I had already had my master's degree, and one of the ways that teachers get paid more is you just keep taking classes. doesn't matter on what. So I was taking an art class, as, you know, all history teachers do, and, um, and it was a disaster, 
I'm not going to lie. I was terrible. I couldn't get myself to relax. I could not just, I was so focused on like, you know, don't make mistakes. Am I doing this right? You know, don't color outside the lines. And I remember the professor. We're in this big studio, and everyone's got these big tables. This professor kind of wanders over behind me, you know. And I'm just sweating now. I'm like, oh, God, don't look at this, please. And he puts both of his hands on my shoulders, like very, and I thought, oh, he's going to be very supportive here and, like, really encourage me. And um, he says to the entire class, he's like, you know what? There's an artist in every one of us, but by the age of 10, our culture has wounded almost all of them. And, and then he, he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, and in some cases, even killed them. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Wow, so inspiring. Now I'm ready, right? But there is something to this, right? Think about it. Little kids are always drawing. They're always painting. They're always, like, stacking blocks and boxes. And you've, you've all seen kids, like, open their Christmas presents and then move the toy aside and they play with the box because they're coming up with their own things. They're role-playing. They're making up games. They're, this um, Christmas break, I was sitting next to Ma Maggie Ring at a basketball game while she was busily writing a play for her and her little cousins to, perf to perform over the holidays. They're amazingly creative, kids are. I, like I said, I was in Kidport last week. There's two things that I, I walked away from there, uh, two lessons. And the first one is do not skip snack time, okay? You do not want to do that. And the second thing is being with children is like this reminder of, oh, this is who I could be. Oh, man, I could get emotions just thinking about it. I was sitting there playing. I was in the play station. That's where I was. Everybody, you know, other people were doing actual things. I, my role was to play with the kids. And they taught me so much as three groups came through in, in waves. It's like, this is who I could be. I, I could be like this. And they were just oozing creativity and freedom. And it's just such a reminder that human beings have this innate desire to make things, to create. And this makes sense when you consider the, the story the Bible tells us about us. God created not just, didn't just create us as any old creatures, uh, but as co-creators. Now, this is evident in the beginning of our life when we're children, and it's evident at the beginning of the Bible when we go back to the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, it's very clear that God created the universe and everything in it, but it's also super striking to go, he didn't finish the job. God did not finish the job. So, for instance, there is no bread tree in the Garden of Eden. God makes wheat. We make bread. Now, we can even do it gluten-free. I don't know why you would, okay? But some people, someone asked me, what's gluten? I go, I have no idea, but it's tasty. I, I love it. So, but God stopped short, in other words, of, this is so odd to think about. God stopped short of making, like, life complete, if you think about it. So in a twist that I'm sure I never would have thought of if I was God, he culminated all of creation by infusing his last creature, us, with his image. And then, and the, Bi the Bible says God instructed us to prosper, reproduce, um, and fill the earth, take, take charge, be responsible. If you were to ask an anthropologist, like, what is this? What's this charge that God is, is giving humanity? An anthropologist would say he's inviting human beings into culture making. Culture making. God is inviting us to create culture. 
And culture is a way of making meaning out of life. That's what culture is. One writer put it like this. Culture is anything we do to bring order out of chaos that brings meaning and purpose or beauty and truth out of the raw materials. So combing hair, raising tomatoes, writing poetry, making an omelet, singing a song, designing buildings, they're all cultural activities. Isn't it interesting? It's so fascinating to me and quite telling that God does not create culture. He leaves that up to us. In fact, we could put it this way. Creating culture is a uniquely human project. Yet it's one that God cares about very, very much. So even at the end of time, if you skip from the first book of the Bible, from Genesis, all the way to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, we find a heavenly city coming down to earth. Now, I'm not a city person, okay? And I'm not a nature person either. I'm more of like a suburban sofa um, like remote control person, okay? But I'm, so I'm not a big, huge fan of cities, but it's really telling that at the end, at the end of the age, the Bible says, there's a heavenly city that comes down to earth. And think, what is a city? A city is built by taking raw materials that we find around us and making something out of them. So gems become jewels. Gold becomes streets. Trees become buildings, okay? And, and, and in this city, here's the other thing that we see. Different culture. Different, cult, different groups of people with very different ways of making meaning out of life. They're all welcomed, they're all celebrating, and they're all celebrated. It's really amazing. Heaven, as it turns out, is multicultural. The Bible is very clear. Every tribe tongue and nation will be present there is no one magic perfect correct culture and sometimes i think we get that wrong the church especially thinks it's gotta look this way and then you look at how god has it look at the end and it doesn't look that way at all culture is a space where we find to create order enjoy beauty discover truth and derive meaning out of the world around us and apparently According to God, there's more than one way to do that. It's really fascinating. Very surprising. Creating culture is as old as we are, and it is a sacred longing. It's a holy duty, and it lasts forever. It never ends. One little self-check that I run on myself is, Mike, how well do you tolerate others making different decisions about what to value how to love, what's beautiful and meaningful. And, and am I even close to actually celebrating those differences? Or do they just bother me? And I'll let you guess, okay? But I don't do very well on that test, if I'm honest with myself. And I think our society generally just stinks at that, right? so bad. Like, we all want to jam everybody into the way we think about it and see it. But that's not the picture that God creates for what he wants to see us moving toward together. Anyways, infused with God's image to create, this is why we see children um, building with blocks and play fighting with sticks and imagining all kinds of make-believe worlds. I heard a, a great story. I've told this story years ago. But I heard this great story about the little girl drawing, and, a, and the teacher comes up behind her and says, 
what are you drawing? And she says, I'm drawing God. And the teacher objects, you know, like, but sweetheart, no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl just kept right on going, and she said, they will in a minute. <laughs> right? That's so awesome. The God of the Bible must love that and recognize himself. But here's the thing. Not in her drawing. In her. That's where he recognizes himself, right? A couple weeks ago, we talked about this explosive growth of dystopian stories and novels and movies. And all this imagining a future where something bad has gone really wrong, right? And I speculated that maybe one of the reasons we see these things exploding is because we are losing our hope that the future can be better than the past. And I, and I still believe that that's part of it, but I want to amend that a little bit this morning by adding this. Maybe the allure of dystopian stories is not that we have to start over. It's that we get to. And that's, that sounds good, right? Maybe this is why the theme resonates so deeply with us. Maybe the culture we live in now just isn't working. It, it seems to be acting as if there's only one way to find hope, derive meaning, enjoy beauty. And it seems to me as if the culture that we're, we're in isn't guiding us into a life of love and loving life. If that's the case, if that's the experience you're having, maybe either side, maybe when we look at this civil war, this cultural civil war that we find ourselves in, maybe if either side were to win, even the side we're rooting for, we'd be as lost as we are right now. So I wonder if to be salt and light looks a lot more like maybe the Red Cross in World War I, where we put on our helmets with a red cross on it, and we crawl out into the mud between these cultures that are entrenched against one another, and we start inviting everyone everywhere every day to join Jesus in the middle to remake and to revalue, to reprioritize and recreate a world that celebrates differences, even if your difference isn't. In all dystopian fiction, we don't have to start over. We get to. And I think that, at least for me, that's part of the draw to it. To recreate a culture, maybe we can do it better, that celebrates different ways of making meaning in the world, and as it will be in this heavenly city. So the question becomes, it seems to me, how can people who are being rerouted by Jesus, or how can, how can we, if we're, we're trying to allow Jesus to reroute us into life, relate to and interact with the predominant culture that we live in, okay, that we talk about all the time, that has become such a huge issue in, in our nation right now. So I'm borrowing right now from the work of Rodney Stark, and he, he is a, a sociologist of religion. And he talks about religions from ancient religions to current religions. And he claims that there are three ways that religions have approached their surrounding culture. Okay? And that it still happens today. All right? 
And so these are the three approaches. The first one is to be defensive against it. So we can see that in what we now know as like the culture war, who's, and where the goal is to defeat a different culture. That's the goal. Through, it's combative, right? We're going to combat that culture that's wrong about X, Y, and Z. And this approach basically says through the power of the sword or through politics, we need to conquer that culture by legislating our values. In other words, this is what love looks like, and we're going to pass a law that makes others live this way. Okay? A second approach to, to, uh, cult, to the surrounding culture is purity from it. And this isn't combative. It's more like a critique of um, culture. And this is usually done at a distance under the assumption that, you know what, if you mingle and, and mesh with culture at all, if the culture will change you, you won't change it. And so oftentimes communities like this will create parallel institutions, their own schools, their own scouts, their own basketball leagues, retirement communities, even amusement parks, right? Um, they have the, their own everything. Some go even as far as to create separatist communities. The Amish would be an example of this. And a third approach to culture, according to Rodney Stark, is to try to be relevant to it, okay? And this response says, look, the old ways don't make it anymore. They don't make sense anymore. We have to grow, evolve, update. And if we don't, we're going to die. And this is more like copying culture. Years ago, I went to a, um, a conference at a big church. And after a while, I literally started to feel like a little bit queasy. And it wasn't because of anything in particular that they were saying. It was like physically I was starting to feel ill. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, I figured out I was actually getting motion sickness because the speaker was up front. And he was standing in front of a 40 by 80 foot IMAX screen that was constantly rolling these videos of, of, I mean, beautiful, but you're like soaring through the clouds and coming over a mountain and going over the savanna, you know, while he's speaking. And they had it all timed with what he was talking about. And the band was playing beautiful music behind the emotive music behind the speaker, you know. And, and there was smoke machines in the ceiling and it was kind of, lofting down, and, and it was amazing. I, I have, it was quite a production. It was like being at a rock concert, and I'm not critiquing it other than saying they basically said, hey, this works in culture. We're just going to copy it. But these three approaches toward culture have this in common. They fit somewhere on this continuum, okay, from condemning and combating culture on the one hand to condoning it, consuming it, and copying it on the other. In other words, all three of these reactions are reactionary. They're reactionary. They're, they're like me in that art class. That's what they are. They're afraid to make mistakes. They're incapable of truly stepping into our divine design to, to create something new. So when it comes to culture, what we see in the Bible and in the early church and all throughout history in the richest times of the church is exactly what we see in early childhood. It's exactly what we see in the Garden of Eden. It's not a reaction to culture. It's not these deep fabrications or some masquerade. It is the creation of culture. It's a fourth way, if you will, forward. 
And as we wrap up this series on the Beatitudes and, and wonder what it might look like to reroute our lives towards being salt, uh, towards being salt of the earth and the light of the, of the world, I think it's good to be reminded that this is the approach we're trying to live out in Storyline. Together, we're striving to cultivate a new way of making sense out of the world, where in spite of all of the pain and the injustice and the division and the commotion and the complexity and the stagnation surrounding us, in spite of even the cultural death wish that sometimes our pop culture and media presents in front of us, that some of us might even resonate with, we are together right here, right now, cultivating a new way of making meaning out of life because, and this is the key, our underlying assumption, what's beneath us and behind us and before us and beyond us is grace. We believe that the universe runs on God's grace, which is why the culture we create must not just tolerate but celebrate other ways of making meaning, of finding beauty, of drawing God. If God is on our side, if we don't have to react then in the right or the appropriate way to people who think or look or see or believe things differently, we don't have to get it right every time to know what is right and wrong and, and what do we exclude and what do we include and what does love look like for you. So we don't have to condemn or condone or consume the culture that surrounds us. We don't have to be reactionary, frankly, in any way. It's our chance to create something new because Storyline is grounded on this ultimate reroute this ultimate and anti-intuitive reroute of the gospel of grace as opposed to the right religion. The gospel of grace, which is where the innocent die for the guilty. Where the innocent die for the guilty. We don't, we don't have to defend ourselves. We can be unoffendable because we follow somebody who died for the guilty. And that person looks a lot like me. So what that does is it frees us from reacting the right way and it frees us for creating a better way. That just becomes the only question. And, and so we're free to create a new culture based on the grace of God in a way that's more accessible to more people and when it comes to maybe uh, the, the way that people ex experience communities of faith, we want this, we would love for our community to be more accessible to more people, regardless of if they've had a bad experience with church or no experience with church. So, um, for instance, I'll give you a, two, a couple of examples. Next week is a fifth Sunday, and from the beginning, we've dedicated our fifth Sundays to impact, to going out on these Sundays, and we serve servants. We don't try to create our own thing. We don't put our own thing on the name, on, on anything. We look around and we go, who is serving servants? Let's serve. Who is serving people? Who's making a difference? Let's serve them. And I think it's an example of creating culture based on grace. 
actively, assertively, creatively reaching into life to really thinking about how can we make meaning, find purpose in some of the most difficult, complex, difficult situations of real life and doing that together for others, salt and light. Storyline, in my opinion, one of the things I love most about Storyline, because I'm a sports nut, is we have a ton of people who coach. And um, football, basketball, volleyball. And this, this fall, I watched one of my friends, who I've known forever, coach his sons in basketball. And they were unbelievable. Like, I was telling high school kids, like, you've got to go watch this junior high team play. They're, I think they could beat our JV. They're so good, but they play so free. They're coached so well, but they're... they're, they're the, the big picture is in focus. Like basketball isn't about basketball. It's not about winning. It's about playing as a team, figuring out who you are. How do you complement other people? What's your role? It's just such a beautiful thing to see this storyliner create a culture. Like it doesn't have to be the way AAU says or the way this or that coach says. It doesn't have to even be about winning. It could be about something bigger than that. It's, just so, it's so beautiful when you see it. So what we're doing, I would say, isn't new. I think of it this way. Well, all of the churches, if you think of a traditional church, if I say, what's a traditional church? Picture that in your mind. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a traditional church. They were all revolutionary culture-making um, communities when they started. All of them, Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, created culture. They all created that. Each of these denominations have amazing creation stories. This morning at the mass mini-gathering ahead of, uh, beforehand, I was talking about there was somebody in there who's Methodist. And one of my favorite creation stories of any denomination is the Methodist denomination where Wesley, he goes to a cemetery where people are really hurting, and he, they wouldn't let him preach in a church, a traditional church. He stood on his father's grave and share the gospel of grace with people who are really hurting. And that's how Methodism started. It's so beautiful. Here's the thing, though. When we think of traditional church, it's just happened so long ago that we're tempted to believe, like, this is how it's always been. Or, like, you know, God created the Catholic Mass or the Lutheran liturgy or the Baptist preacher. But God didn't create those things. We did. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. It's a great thing. Which brings us to my last question as we wrap up here. Like, why now? Why us? Why do we feel the need to create a new culture? And the short answer is because culture is a very powerful force, but it's also very, very subtle. Like the story of the two fish I've told before with two young fish swimming this way and the old fish swimming that way. And the old fish says to the young fish, how's the water? And the one young fish looks to the other young fish and says, what the heck is water? Culture to us is like water to fish. It's pervasive. We're submerged in it. We move in it. We breathe in it. And if we never step back from it, there's an ancient Chinese saying that says, the only fish who ever feels wet is the one on a dock. And then all of a sudden they realize they're wet. But if we never step back from our culture, if we just accept it as is, we listen to the talking heads or we just swim along, we're never, we, never, we can't know what's impacting us. Because when it comes, uh, when it comes to uh, culture, if we're too familiar with it, 
right? We lose our ability to expand our horizons and the possibility in our lives. So part of the reason that Storyline wants to create a new culture is to both celebrate the beauty and consider the danger of the wider culture that we find ourselves in. And both are present. So when we fail to see our own culture, its beauty goes unappreciated and its danger goes unnoticed. And that's when we have to remember, oh yeah, that's right. God doesn't create culture. We do. We create culture. So if any culture isn't working anymore to help us find order, enjoy beauty, discover truth, derive meaning, that's a pretty good sign that it's time to create a new one. And so more than anything, what you see in Storyline is a community attempting, and it's an attempt. It's in fits and starts. We make mistakes all the time, but it's an attempt to create a culture of faith based on grace. And that means it's accessible to those of us who are unfamiliar with, allergic to, or even even been burned by the traditional church and or the larger culture that you just feel like you don't fit in, that we all swim in. Like we just don't, it just doesn't work for us. So we want to avoid, that means we want to avoid copying the surrounding culture. We want to avoid just condemning it with a broad brush or blindly consuming it. And we believe for many people outside of church right now, it's not so much that they've rejected God or they've rejected Jesus or they've rejected faith. It might just be that they've said no to the man-made culture of church. So for all of these reasons and more, Storyline believes, has believed from the very beginning, it's time for us to go. Yet again, as the church has done so many times in so many places, and recreate a culture of grace. That's God's original mandate. We see it in the Garden of Eden, and we see it in kindergarten. Creating culture is what the church has always done, and it's just so old, it looks new. So it seems to me that the Beatitudes of Jesus is rerouting us toward being salt and light and creating a culture that helps others. So we were created to be creators. That's a weird thing to think about, right? And this map of the beatitude leads us into the invitation to be salt and light. And this is why in our heart of hearts, we long to make our world a place to enjoy beauty, discover purpose, and derive meaning. And may we together create a culture that celebrates all of God's children, firmly grounded in the freedom and love that comes from his image within us, and his grace beneath us, before us, and beyond us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this time and this place, for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for your word and the Beatitudes and the ways that they have challenged us and yet given us a chance. Um, The way that they come off as an obstacle and yet, they're giving us an opportunity to um, follow you into rerouting our lives into this anti-intuitive way of living where blessing is found in, in people, in places, in endeavors that um, maybe our instinct, uh, maybe our intuition 
certainly the world around us is telling us can't be so. I pray that as we move forward as a community, that you would give us uh, your broken heart for one another, that we'd be quick to forgive, quick to um, move on together in search of finding um, and creating a culture of grace for everyone, everywhere, every day to know that you love them. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. See you.